You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Our sermon text today is 1 Samuel chapter 31. I'm going to read it for us, but it'll also be on the screens for you. This chapter is entitled, The Death of Saul. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day, together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethsham. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is God's word. Thanks, Megan. Someone here. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Um, it's my privilege to wrap up First Samuel, the book of First Samuel, uh, this morning. We uh, won't pick up Second Samuel again until the start of 2021, and so it's been a great journey uh, through this book. And as I've been thinking about all the stories that have been in First Samuel, it's been reminding me of. Uh, uh, what I'm doing a lot with my daughter right now, uh, Sayla recently got gifted this the really thick book of fairy tales. And uh, I've kind of been like, eh, about the fairy tale thing, you know, we can have another conversation about that another time. But um, anyways, I started reading, you know, the classics, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, um, Cinderella, you know, stuff like that. And then, I don't know if y'all read some of these big, thick fairy tale books. There's some weird ones in there. Like, there's one called, like, Donkey Skin. Like, don't go read Donkey Skin to your kids or your future kids. Just, like, I'll just save you right there. Um, anyways, like I said, we're still figuring out exactly how we feel about these fairy 
fairy tales. But regardless, all of every single one of them ends with one phrase. Do you remember what it is? Every fairy tale. They lived happily ever after. Ah. Um, so I think the reason this phrase is so popular in so many books, and especially kids' books, is because it's what really we long for in a turbulent world. Happiness, rest, the rest of our days. But adults, we, we read this line, I read it too, and we're just like, we just like roll our eyes, scoff, happily ever after, right? <laughs> We've experienced enough turmoil in the brokenness in the world to realize that happily ever after does not exist in a world like this of brokenness. We experience this cruel paradox. On one hand, a yearning in our heart for this happily ever after type reality, but in our experience, a winding path of a life full of wounds and limps. And the end of 1 Samuel does not give us any happily ever after endings for anyone involved. It's the tragic ending of, of the life of Saul. It's the bitter end to someone who constantly refused to trust God. But Saul's tragic end is also an aid to us this morning that I want to point out. It's an aid to both warn us and to encourage us towards the one God who holds all our stories in his hand. And that's the reason I've titled this sermon this morning, Lessons from a Lost Religious Leader. Because Saul has a lot to teach us this morning. So let me pray for us before I jump in. Uh, pray with me. Father, we agree with the psalmist this morning that your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a, it's a light to our path. And so, God, we pray that your word would, you would use your word for what you've intended it for. To light up the dark places, the, the dark nooks and crannies that we try to keep hidden. To show us and, and put a spotlight on Jesus Christ this morning. That we would exalt and adore and worship Him. And I pray you'd put me in the shade. Put me in the dark. That we would only see Christ. We'd only hear from you. That I would decrease and He would increase in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start chapter 31, the author's snapping us back to kind of like a break that he'd been taking. So we took a two-chapter break basically to focus on David's dilemma the last couple weeks. And it's almost like he's a TV host kind of being like, hey, kind of back to your scheduled programming uh, from that break we just took. The whole chapter can be really summarized from verse 1. A sad summary. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and lay slain on Mount Gilboa. It's tragic, but it's simple. The last two chapters were about David's double deliverance, but there's no deliverance to be found here. It's the enemies of God's people winning the day. Uh, even if you just look at the verbs of the story, they tell, they tell it all. Listen to the verbs just found throughout these 13 verses. Three times, talking about fleeing. Four times, falling, striking down, wounded, pierced through, dying. Four times, stripped, cut off. The rest of the chapter is just fleshing out the details of this first tragic verse. And the first detail we get in verse 2 is this. That the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. So if you've been with us this series, specifically the death of Jonathan is really tragic. 
in a lot of these sermons through the series, Jonathan's been this faithful friend and this really hero through many of the stories of this book. Uh, he remained a true friend to David and a true son, a good faithful son to Saul. He courageously trusted God, boldly trusted God to go defeat en enemies, sometimes single-handedly. He surrendered his future power and his future privilege uh, to David so he could just obey God. And here we see him giving up his life next to his dad, being a faithful son. He's a model for us of faithfulness to his God, faithfulness to his family, faithfulness to his friends. But yet here he just meets the same death as his unfaithful father. And the tragedy, though, continues. After Saul's sons die, the, the Katniss Everdeens and the Legolases of the Philistines, they, uh, they find Saul and they uh, mortally wound him. He gets mortally wounded by the archers. Instead of getting taken by the enemy wounded, Saul begs. He's in such desperation, he begs his armor bearer just to kill him. And Saul knows, he does this because he knows the, the mutilation, the humiliation that's going to come if he gets captured. Because the removal of body parts and torture and decapitation were just the common practice if you were an, an enemy wounded soldier in a Near Eastern culture. But the armor bearer refuses. So Saul takes an even more desperate measure that we read about. Verse 4, Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So Saul follows in the bitter path of, of many uh, leaders in the Bible, so filled with fear or shame that they take their own life. And it's really this just dark moment, because Saul's inauguration as Israel's first king was filled with these soaring hopes of possibility, but just end here with just sinking disappointment. And it doesn't even really stop there. The sadness continues. Jonathan's death is sad. Saul's demise is sad, but it's a deeper sadness that Yahweh, that God, is, is mocked. The, the Philistines, they're returning home, victory dancing, celebrating that their gods have defeated the God of the Israelites. They're saying, surely God cannot be that great. We just, look what we just did. We just licked them, man. Saul, his sons, the, the towns are emptying out. We're capturing them. God cannot be that strong. Worse than Israel's defeat is Yahweh's disgrace among the nations. And so, friends, Saul's example is right here a good example for us. Well, not a good example. I take that back. Edit good out of that last sentence. Saul is an example for us. Disobedience to God always has the same result. Always. Tragedy. His disobedience led to his untimely death. It led to the brutal demise of his sons. It led to God's people fleeing for their life. And worst of all, it brought reproach to the name of God's reputation among the nations around them. And friends, I, I want to overturn a lie that is so common in our minds and in our culture. And it's this. My sin, my wrong, only affects me. My sin only affects me. Friends, I, I want to remind you, I want to overturn that. Your sin always, always hurts others. Always. Even if your sin is secret, it will hurt others. It will hurt you. It will hurt you you care most about. It will wound the church. And worst of all, it will defame your witness to the gospel of Christ in the world and to others around you. 
There is a long line of examples in the Bible of those that just tried to keep their sin in the secret and covered it up with just a religious veneer only to have it just blow up. And hidden sin is such a tragedy because the whole time God is holding out an invitation for healing of your sin. He said, come, come and confess. Come and bring it to me and I'll heal it. I'll take care of it. I'll wash you and I'll make this right. And so it's an invitation for us this morning if we have that. If that's you this morning harboring a sin or maybe even a secret sin to, to make it known. To tell it to God. To go tell it to godly friends. To confess it to God and, and have the forgiveness that comes with Jesus. Or to confess it to brothers and sisters in Christ that will hear your words, that will hear the ugliness of your sin and look at you and say, because of Jesus, I accept you. I love you. And I'm going to walk with this through, I'm going to walk, uh, walk with you through this. Your sin will always find you out. Don't leave it hidden. God's inviting. Have it healed. So verse 6 offers another summary of the day. A sad summary. Then Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men and on the same day together. Pretty much worst day ever for Israel. The Israelites, this is like having the year 2020 all like rolled up into like one day, basically. <laughs> But in this dark backdrop that we're seeing, God is showing us something bright to see. Namely, it's the, the radiance of the trustworthiness of God's word. Since chapter 15, really years and even decades ago in Samuel, God's been speaking about this tragic day. Less than 24 hours before this happens, it's specifically, we heard about it in chapter 28, God specifically foretold exactly what was going to happen this day. That Saul and his sons were going to die together. From decades past until just one day before, God's word had stayed consistent and true. What Yahweh says, Yahweh brings to pass every time. Israel might fall to the enemy. Saul might fall on the sword. You and I might fall daily, but the word of our God will never, ever fall. I love this quote by Dale Rass Davis. He um, is a commentator for 1 Samuel. He says, If Yahweh's word of judgment on Saul is true, we can equally be assured of his promise to David. So in darkness or light, what matters is having a God who speaks a true and faithful word. And that's our God that speaks a true and faithful word. But God's promises to bless and His warnings will all come to pass. You can bank on them as much and even more so than you can roll out of bed and bank that gravity is going to catch you. For years and years, God gave Saul this warning, warnings again and again by His word. And again and again, God invited Saul to seek Him, seek me and follow His direction. But Saul doesn't listen. Saul refused to listen to God, his sure warnings. And so the question from Saul's example from us is, are we ignoring God's warnings too? Are we ignoring his warnings too? So I don't want to overlook the glorious, the mountains of glorious promises we have in the Bible, but, but there are warnings for us as well. Uh, specifically, even Jesus gave us lots of warnings. I just want to give you one example. Just talk about that for a minute. One example is in Matthew 10. This is what Jesus says. 
Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So here's the, the warning from Jesus for us. If you don't profess your faith in me to others, it's, it's evidence you don't know me. And if you don't know me, then when you, you come before my father, I'm just going to tell him the truth. When this guy was at risk of looking silly for his faith, he didn't acknowledge me. He didn't talk about me. When her job was at risk, if she talked about me at all, she just decided again and again and again just to play it safe, to stay under the radar. They denied me before other people. They don't, they don't know me, so I don't, I don't know them. Father, you can just send them off. And I pray we wouldn't be hard of hearing like Saul, but we would believe fully that God's word literally will come to pass. These are literal warnings meant for literal people uh, that will literally come to pass one day. And Saul's example to us, it, it's pleading with us to heed God's warnings, not as heavy-handed or punishing, but as loving, as inviting. I can do this too, but I want to encourage you. Don't, don't gloss over the warnings in the Bible that get to like the happy, make your heart sore stuff, right? That's great too. But, but these warnings, friends, they're, they're God's gift to you. Let's take them as that. So the battle ends and we see more and more fallout. One of the, once the Israelites see uh, their kings, and, uh, the king and the sons are defeated, they, they abandon their homes. They run out of their homes and their towns and uh, the Philistines come and occupy them. So, like, imagine having like your worst enemy. Picture them in your head right now. And then picture them sitting on your couch, feet up, and like eating all your food while you're homeless, like on the street. That's basically what they're experiencing right now. And the next day, the Philistines, they, they're wading through the spoils of battle as was common, and they find Saul's body. And this is what they do in verse 9. They, they cut off his head, they stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the, the good news to the house of their idols and the people. This king, he had such promise to deliver Israel, but he was now just being paraded around as a, as a trophy for the enemy. The king that was praised as this great upstanding leader because he stood a whole head above all the people now didn't even have his head. Israel looked at him to give them this triumph over their enemies to guide them in courage and wisdom. But yet in the face of the Philistines, he loses ground instead of gaining it. And his colossal potential just dwindles down into a life that uh, ends in utter, utter disappointment. And the story exposes Israel's wandering worship. They craved the human king. They salivated for the sure protection that would come against their enemies and that would come with a political solution. And we're seeing here how a political solution or a political figure or a political process or a system, how putting that above God, how that will always turn out. It will always turn out with our hopes dashed and our hopes wor and worse off than before. And the Philistines, they, they take Saul's mutilated body and they hang him up next to a wall of their gods and their idols. And, and I think it's no accident that Saul ends up where he does hanging lifeless next to other lifeless man-made idols. 
For, for you and I to place our security and our hope and our joy in everything other than God is as foolish as hoping in a wooden, lifeless statue. Your career is not going to give, will give you ultimate purpose. It won't give you ultimate purpose any more than a wooden idol could. Your choice of presence will not provide you any more stability than a statue standing over here could. Or knocking out all the destinations on your travel wish list are not going to leave you more satisfied than a little clay idol just sitting in your hand. For those satisfied in Christ, life is, can be a consistent just switching of failing idols. Each one ultimately just ending in disappointment. A life full of, once I get theirs, or once this problem is fixed, then I'll be happy and content. And if we're not careful, we can just put our hopes in the next idol in line, right? That one, then that one, then that one. I think I'm going to put my security in. Man, my, my bank account would really give me some more security if it were more full right now. I'm going to run after that. Oh, man, that's not enough. Um, what's next? Maybe I can find some desirability in my new workout routine and just looking good. Dang, I'm still insecure. Okay, what else? Uh, how about maybe I can go follow this charismatic, uh, good-looking Christian leader. They did, but, oh, man, they didn't turn out to be so perfect. On to the next thing. Round and round we go. Just choosing the next dead, lifeless idol on the wall. Constantly restless. Always drinking, but somehow getting more and more thirsty. And all the while, Jesus is inviting you. Are you weary? Come find your rest in me. Are you just dry and wrung out today? Drink in fellowship with me and you will never be thirsty. Are you feeling alone? Abide in me. I'll give you a home. And this pandemic, it's, it's made us more and more aware that in any season, let's be honest, there's, there's no one else we can put our trust in. I mean, like, look around. <laughs> there, there really is only one that can comfort and carry us. So what's it for you? What's your, once this is fixed, I'll be happy, or the, once this is achieved, I'll follow God more. Once this is accomplished, I can rest. What's that for you? I guarantee you, Jesus is better. He's stronger. He's more satisfying. He's more loving. He's more pure. He's more good and just and powerful than whatever you're thinking about. So to all the wrong of this story, the last few verses actually end in a little bit of good. Some uh, valiant men hear how Saul's been mistreated and they won't stand idle. They trek it all night on a covert mission into enemy territory to steal back Saul's body and his son's bodies. Uh, these people, they're from a place called uh, Jebesh Gilead. They, they showed honor to Saul's and their sons by giving them a proper funeral. It's actually kind of reminiscent of what will happen to Jesus when um, women courageously come and prepare his body for burial. They've been the that's actually interesting. These guys have been the recipients. This town have been the recipients of Saul's salvation in 1 Samuel 11. When the Philistines were prepared to kill this whole town, 
Saul marched all through the night, another covert night mission, to save them. And so even though Saul's reign ended in evil, uh, these men still expressed gratitude for what had been done with them. These guys probably did not have re-elect Saul signs up on their front lawns, but they followed God's heart in what Romans 13 tells us, that giving honor where honor is due. Saul's tragic end doesn't mean that all of God's work through him earlier in life is just somehow nullified and undone. So the book here, 1 Samuel, ends with some somber words. So the last verse of the, of the book. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. It ends with a funeral, mourning, not eating for a week. Not happily ever after. And while this, this chapter gives us valuable lessons, I, I want to zoom out for the rest of our time. Uh, on, and I want to look at Saul's entire life, not just his death, his entire life, to see what we can learn at the end of his life. How can we learn from a tragedy like his? And looking at Saul's death in uh, uh, his life, I want to see three things. Three lessons from a lost religious leader. Three lessons from a lost religious leader that I want to look at. Number one. Saul kept up religious practices without ever knowing God. Saul did a lot of great things for God. He conquered enemies. He got rid of sorcerers and witches. He prayed to God earnestly. In today's vernacular, Saul might have been the faithful churchgoer. There every Sunday, giving money. Going on the mission tips. Brother probably even helped out with RCC kids downstairs. God bless him. But as Saul's life goes on, we see Saul lacking two essential things in knowing God. Uh, one, we see tr Saul did not trust God. Saul followed God's word when it was convenient for him. At times he was obedient. It looked like he was obedient because it, it lined up with his interest. But following God only when it's convenient is uh, it's like going to the dentist. It's not like going to the dentist to me. If you wait until you just want to go or it's convenient to go, you're never going to go. And it's been about six years for me. Like, true confession. I've, I need to repent and change my ways about repentance. No joke. Um, <laughs> but Saul... He was never fully convinced of God's goodness, of the goodness of his ways. And he trusted his ways over God's. Saul was after what worked, not God himself. In all his religious activism, Saul was just after the solution on his own terms. And God was just an avenue to get there. He wanted God to make his life work. And we need to be careful not to follow the same pattern. Secondly, Saul was not satisfied in God. He, his life is restless. If you just overview his life, he is restless. God was never really enough for him. When God asked Saul to make himself, or not to make himself rich from the people he was conquering, Saul did anyways. He said, God, it's not enough that I'm the first appointed king of Israel. I need to be rich too. I need more. When God told Saul that, that David would be the next king, Saul is just trying to kill David over and over again. 
You say, I need to make sure I have an inheritance. I need to make sure I don't share praise or glory with anyone else. I need more. But those who are satisfied with God, I love it, are like Paul in Philippians 3, who he says, I count everything else, just a pile of manure in light of the satisfaction of knowing Jesus. His life had one sole aim. I just, I want to know Jesus. I don't care what it costs. I want to know him. Because you can never discover the end to his wisdom. You'll never reach the shores of the endless ocean of his love for you. You'll never grow tired of tasting and experiencing the feast of his goodness in your life. Trusting God and being satisfied with God. It's, it's Saul's life teaches us those are essential to knowing him. You need to trust him. You need to be satisfied with him. And I, I really think all of our spiritual problems can be traced back to a, either a lack of satisfaction or a lack of trust in God. And friends, I, I want to love you by encouraging you not to be deceived just because you're a part of a church, just because you know some lingo, and just because you maybe give some time or money does not mean you just automatically know God. When Jesus sends people away from him on the last day, his rebuke is not, you didn't perform enough religious activity for me. His rebuke is, I never knew you. To know Jesus is to know how he feels about us and rest, rest in his work on our behalf. Second lesson, Saul never learned to repent. This is big. There are times when Saul looked like a repentant brother. He said he was sorry. He said he would change. He did the religious rites. He even shed tears of grief over his mistakes. But actually, he never addressed the root of his sin, his idolatry. He never repented, truly. He fooled a lot of people around him. He probably even fooled himself. But Saul's lack of trust and his lack of satisfaction in God kept him from true repentance that can only come through an unconditional surrender to God. And so Saul's phony repentance raises this question for us too. Do, do we know how to repent? And it's important to know the question this answer because it's only through right, the, the gift and the hard work of repentance that real change is going to come for the Christian. Many Christians talk about confession and repentance, but settle for a charade of what God really intended. We might feel sorry, we might vow to change, we might even make a 10-step program, but miss the true healing that comes with repentance. And Saul's bad example helps us see what true repentance looks like. I, I want to point out quickly four things that true repentance looks like. First, true repentance doesn't justify or blame shift. False repentance downplays sin. We'll admit maybe what we did was not the best, it was a mistake, or maybe even that it hurt someone, but we will minimize and we will shift blame. And if we put our wrongdoing under the right light, it's really understandable why we did it. And we can even be pretty justified in why. We can make excuses or justifications for what we did. I know I should forgive this friend, but you don't know how hurt I am in my past. I know I shouldn't get physical with this girlfriend, but God made me with this deep desire. And man, I just love her so much. I know I should give to God's mission, but just I, I need to build up this, uh, my, my five-year plan first. But what we're really saying with these examples 
God, I'm in the right. You're in the wrong. I'm justified in what I did. And a rationalizing, self-justifying attitude leaves absolutely no room for repentance. Because true repentance owns our sin as it is. You want to talk about a name and claim it theology? Name and claim your sin and bring it to Jesus. We don't make it smaller or try to just explain it away. Second, uh, true repentance is accompanied by change. Briefly here. True repentance is not shown as an emotional experience, although it may have emotion, or just a desire to change. It's shown by real life hard change. If your life doesn't look different after repentance, then you haven't repented. If you're repenting of being a jerk and two months later you're still not any kinder, you're not repenting. It's not perfection, be careful, it's just change, it's growth. Repentance is always going to be accompanied by change. Thirdly, true repentance produces the right kind of sorrow. Uh, I've sat with a lot of people who have shed literal tears over their sin and mistakes. But the Bible tells us there are actually two types of sorrow that can, that are, can be responses to sin. Uh, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow both cry over sin, but one leads to healing and the other to destruction. Godly sorrow is rooted in the fact that we have hurt an eternally loving, good, holy God, and that grieves us. But worldly sorrow is rooted in the consequences of sin. We're, we're grieved because we got caught. We're worried about what other people are going to think about us. Now we have some consequences that I don't really like. And that makes me sad. That makes me shed tears. But until our desire ultimately is to be reconciled to God, our, our emotions are not a sign of true repentance. Fourthly, lastly, for repentance, true repentance is not partial or conditional. True repentance is accompanied by an unconditional obedience. We can find ourselves maybe trying to make like bargain a deal with God in our repentance. You know, like people kind of like buy, you know, like double down to get like a smaller prison sentence or something like that. Like we can find ourselves doing that with God. Or we can agree to surrender to God just in one area, but then I really need to keep my hand on the steering wheel over here. I, I can't give you the whole thing. I'll read my Bible and give to, give to church, but I, I won't share my faith with anyone. Or I'll go to the gospel community and love my neighbors, but uh, I really need to keep nursing this secret porn habit over here. But friends, partial obedience is, is offensive to God. I, I want to maybe just give you an example to, to, to communicate why that is. I want you to imagine maybe a, a spouse that had multiple affairs simultaneously, and they got found out. Can, can you imagine if the husband comes to the wife and says, Hey, babe, I really want to make things right. I am going to give up my Wednesday night fling for you. I'm going to keep Thursday. I'm going to keep Saturday. But I love you so much, babe. Wednesday night, off the table. Like, we laugh, but, how, but we do that, right? That's not true repentance. True repentance runs from everything that erodes our worship and everything that erodes our allegiance to our king. Love what J.D. Greer says. He says, if Jesus is actually a Lord, then the Lordship is either total or it is a complete sham. As it, as it is often said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Mm -hmm. 
So let's not fall off your soul. Let's be repentant. Let's, let's do it well with one another, with our coworkers, with our kids, with our neighbors. Uh, trying to actually hide our sin is actually hiding the gospel from people. When, when we say, hey, here's my sin, but it doesn't matter because Jesus has paid for this. When we bring out our sin and repentance, we're putting the gospel on display. We're not hiding it. We're not marring it. Right? Look at what Jesus has done. He's healing me. He's forgiving me. He's bringing me to a, a people. I want to show that to people around me, right? I don't want to hide and nurse this sin and people to think I'm like a perfect person that doesn't need the gospel. Third, um, and lastly, Saul died the sinner's death. Third lesson. Saul died a terrible death as a sinner. He was stripped naked. He was hung up. He was mocked by his enemies. And in the outside world, especially the Philistines, it looked like God had just been defeated. God's people were scattered. Their king was strung up, rightly forsaken for his sin. But in the dark scene we see here at the end of the chapter, there's this faint glimmer of hope. The death of King Saul is a precursor to a coming king. Behind the scenes, God has been preparing one after a new king, one after God's own heart, who's going to bring salvation to Israel. David is soon going to be crowned king, the new king of Israel. More importantly, King David is going to show us what the real coming king is going to look like. Because like David, Jesus is only going to assume the throne after these shameful rulers had rejected God. But only this time, we're going to be playing the part of Saul, those that deserve the sinner's death. We're meant to be, we deserve to be in Saul's place. But Jesus, he flips up the script. Instead, he would come in our place to be, to be the one to be strung up, to be the one to be mocked, to be the victory trophy of the godless. He'd be forsaken and rejected by God so we could be accepted in. And the world has a really hard time accepting a Savior like Jesus. They, they want saviors. They just don't want, they want Saul's. They want strong, confident creatures and systems that will fix all those problems out there. But Saul's life teaches us there's only one Savior that can really fix our real problem. Because Jesus did not come to say, I'm going to fix your problems out here. He came to fix our biggest problem in here. He came to heal our hearts. He came to make us new. Remember how I was sharing about my... Um, Reading my daughter about fairy tales and that common ending. They live happy, happily ever after. Uh, understandably, adults criticize this phrase. They've seen the bitterness of life. Uh, I think this quote from Robin Schneider's book, The Beginning of Everything, captures that idea well. This is what she says in her book. She says, life is the tragedy. She said bitterly. You know how to categorize, do you know how to categorize Shakespeare's plays, right? If it ends with a wedding, it's a comedy. If it ends with a funeral, it's a tragedy. So we're all living tragedies because we all end the same way. And it's not with a wedding. Everyone's life ends with a funeral, so we're all tragedies. It, it, you kind of see the logic, right? Saul's life ends with a funeral. It's a tragedy. Every one of our lives on earth is heading towards a funeral. It can seem tragic. And for those outside of Christ, 
The funeral is tragic and the end of all goodness. But that's not how the story ends for us who are in Christ. Because the life of Jesus did not end with a funeral. After the funeral came the empty tomb. And for the Christian, the funeral is not the end. The funeral is the long-awaited doorway to step into something much greater. It's our pathway to be with our Savior in glory. And so we, we get the happily ever after, not because we live in a castle or have lots of gold or romance. Our happily ever after is secured forever because we have Jesus, and it's secured right now. So let's pray and let's thank Him for that. God, we thank you that you've brought us to the end of this journey in 1 Samuel. Uh, we've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. Uh, we've learned a lot about sin and a lot about endurance and a lot about courage and boldness. But more than anything, God, I, I pray that we will have learned more about our King Jesus. The King that came <laughs> so much better than King Saul. So much better than King David, who we're going to learn more about. The perfect King. Not fixing our external circumstances, but fixing us, making us new, making us like you. What a glorious promise and a glorious truth we have. God, help us be brothers and sisters who repent well, who have wholehearted trust and satisfaction in you. We need you to do that in us, so continue to shape and mold our church in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.